Yo, welcome to the Deal Den. It's another dynamite deal. This deal is all about making your business look better. Many of us have day-to-day design needs or week-to-week design needs in our company, but we don't have the budget for a full-time design staff, unfortunately. Today's deal partner solves all that. You get unlimited design services and unlimited revisions. They typically get back to you in two days. So this is like having a designer on staff for one low price. And because it's a dynamite deal, that price is lower than it's ever going to be 35% off today. Check out the examples of the sorts of designs and assets they can build for your business. We've got them all posted over at dynamitedeals.co. That's right. You won't have to interview any designers or do portfolio reviews or wrangle people on Upwork or do another logo design contest. All you got to do is sign up one low monthly rate and unlimited design services. Start looking good. Why not up-level your brand this year and do it with today's deal partner, Many Pixels. Check out this amazing offer over at dynamitedeals.co. We've got 25 packages available. So if you're thinking about taking advantage of this deal, act fast. podcast listener. Even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Hey, yo, welcome back to the pod and welcome back to the Rereadables, of course. The Rereadables is a series on the TMBA pod where we dig into a classic business book so you don't have to, or maybe that will inspire you to. So we've got like a handful of categories, including what's aged the best, what's aged the worst, and we're also going to draw implications from the ideas in today's book. So hopefully you can walk from today's episode with some inspiration and some ideas on how you can improve your business. So today's author, Seth Godin, is perhaps unmatched in his impact in our community, right here, the TMBA community. Perhaps Seth Godin is the most important thought leader of them all, something we are going to dig in today. And it's really hard for me to choose a Seth Godin book because there's so many ones that have stuck with me and have stuck with all of us. In fact, so many of us speak with Seth Godin's terminology, even if we haven't read these books. Books like The Dip, Meatball Sunday, and Lynchpin have just been so incredibly influential. But today, I wanted to select one of Seth's first books and also the one that I first read. In fact, I bought this book. It was one of my first business expenses of all time. That's right. I expensed a run to the bookstore on our business because I figured I needed to unlock marketing knowledge if I was going to grow my business. And so that's where I started. It was certainly fruitful for me. Hopefully, this episode can be fruitful for you. Today's book was published in 2002, and it's called Purple Cow. To join me on this Rereadables episode, I've invited back writer and online entrepreneur, Kyla Gardner. She's a former journalist who currently runs an online publishing company. And recently, she's been turning her focus to spend more time on her personal writing, and you can find that in her amazing newsletter over at kylagardner.com. I super recommend that. 
Kyla, like many members of our community, is currently spending some of the winter months here in Chiang Mai, northern Thailand. So I invited her to my ad hoc recording studio, which is actually just my kitchen table. And I started out by asking her this question. What was her impression on reading Purple Cow? So my first impression was this is probably a testament to Seth Godin's impact, but I've heard this idea before, but still like 100% yes about it. <laughs> and that idea is the first step in marketing something is having a good product. Like you see this all the time with Kindle publishing. That is the first step to marketing your book because right. then people will talk about it. We might as well just like let the cow out of the bag here. Like what is a purple cow? Like how would you describe it if we walked up to you on the street and said, what's the purple cow? So the purple cow is something that's remarkable, something that stands out among a group of products that's already excellent. It's something that's so different in some way that it's different than the already good stuff. I always thought about like he breaks down that word remarkable he like looks at the meaning of it and he's like, actually, it's something that people feel compelled to talk about. So it might not be that quality is your extremity. It could just be weirdness or it could be size or quantity or just like anything that you're like, holy shit, like all of a sudden that cow's purple. I got to like tell my friends about it. I got to tell my family about it. And the book kind of opens up laying out this old school marketing context of you know, you want to reach the most eyeballs with a product that will sort of be generally relevant to the most of them. And he's basically saying like people are out of attention. Those things don't work anymore. And in the attention economy, which is he's really prescient about, you remember he's putting this book out in 2002 and it still stands. I mean, and we're going to talk about what age is the best and what age is the worst, but he's pointing over the fence and saying, this is how businesses will succeed in the future. I thought uh, it was a really still inspiring read. And interestingly enough, for a book that's like so full of case studies, I found like the kind of emotional call to arms to be pretty compelling as well, where he's basically saying like, look, the business world has never moved faster. Like the world has never felt more unpredictable. And what everybody around you is doing right now is they're bracing for certainty. And he's like, if you are an entrepreneur and you take that strategy, you're totally screwed. So basically doing risky things is not risky anymore. And that's kind of one of the main themes of the book. Particularly like with a, with a lot of purple cow products, what he's suggesting you do is like put yourself out there, right? Like mm -hmm. whether that's you're part of an organization and you're asking them to take a risk on your weird idea or whether that's emotionally, if you're making a new invention or a creative product and you're putting it out in front of an audience, one of the ways he says you can be a purple cow is you can make a product that is could be subject to ridicule. Yeah. And he says, like, imagine if your product could be parodied on Saturday Night Live, you know? And if you're doing that, you might be onto something. Well, this doesn't feel safe. This feels like, man, I got one shot to start a business. And I'm going to make something that my, everybody can make fun of around me. Mm-hmm. I think that that him putting you in that space of like discomfort really resonates with me on the second reread. Yeah, for sure. I think the purple cow is basically, it's inherent in entrepreneurialism. He has great lines about leadership and don't follow the leader because the leader got where they are by doing something remarkable. 
And then when you do it, it's not remarkable because they already did it. Right. Like there's so much in entrepreneurship that is like by my course or I'll tell you exactly how I earned money or started this business or read this book by this famous business person. But it's like the core of entrepreneurship is you have to come up with your own purple cow. They're not going to have the answers in that book or that course for you. One of the other things that I hope comes through in this conversation is after reading the book, this is like a first domino book. Like there are so many implications. And you can see it in Seth's career too, that he follows up on a lot of these ideas he first brings up in Purple Cow. So hopefully we can touch on a lot of those today. But I want to move on to the next category, which is what does this book whisper to you? This is a new category. The idea is, is that like there are things that books say explicitly and then there's like the thing that everybody walks away with and whatever books whisper must like annoy the shit out of authors because you took so much time to try to say something that's like not what I said, you know, whereas like my classic example is the four hour work week, like the four hour work week is like define, eliminate, liberate, you know, all this kind of stuff. And people are like, I think I should quit my job and travel the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tim Ferriss like, dude, what's going on? <laughs> so what does this book whisper? You walk away from the book feeling what? It whispers to me, fail more. You can't be afraid of ridicule or looking stupid. And it reminded me of, I used to do improv in Chicago. And one of the founding members of this comedy theater always said, if you're not failing 80% of the time, you're not taking enough risk, which like 80%, that is so much. But the book echoed that for me of... If you're not failing, you're not taking risks. Even if you think you're being risky, if you're not failing, that proves that you're not. The book whispered to me that the businesses of the future will be marketing-centric and that marketers will be at the top of the food chain. So I think for me, this book is a little bit like one of those, you know how like all professions sort of justify themselves as the center of the food chain. Like this is Godin like launching a salvo over the bow saying like, Hey, marketers are the new CEOs. Like they're running shit around here because factories are less important. Like all this distribution stuff is less important. Like if you want to start a business in the future, you are going to need to understand marketing. And so it's a call to arms for marketers to generalize their skill set too and say, Hey, if like, all you're doing is like knowing about Google SEO search or if you know about TV ads or whatever, forget it. Like you need to understand product design. You need to understand your supply chain. You need to understand how to lead people in a team because marketers are at the top of the food chain. I see the shapes. I remember Before we get into the categories, we're going to do some half-assed internet research Purple Cow has over 40,000 ratings on Goodreads with a 3.75 average rating. Seth has one of the world's most popular and longest running personal blogs. I have a strong personal connection to Seth Godin. I met him one time in NYC and I pulled the classic, you meet, met a famous person, you tell them how much their work is meant to you, blunder. I mean, I, I couldn't <laughs> help myself. I could have taken just one moment to be a purple cow in front of Seth. Instead, I was completely average and just was a heap in front of him. It was horrible. But uh, I made up for it. Well, we had him on the show last year, and that was amazing. And I must say, I wouldn't want this to stand up in court, but I've heard many anecdotes from people who've met Seth. And all I've heard across the board is how much of a mensch this guy is, how 
humble, helpful, and he doesn't need to be because he is one of, if not the most famous marketer in the English-speaking world, and I think that's pretty remarkable. For me, Seth Godin means marketing with soul. He really brings a sense of integrity and artistry to what was once considered you know, the madman era of marketing and advertising, this very cynical idea of what it means to be a marketer. Seth's sort of building this platform out saying that's not going to work in the 21st century. And I also want to point out that Seth Godin is largely a practicing preacher, that he's not just like a business school bro, although he did go to Stanford Business School, who just popped out and did management consulting and wrote a bunch of books about it. He founded and exited numerous startups, and he's really done what he's written about. Yeah, part of my half-assed internet research was I learned that he had a record label. I was like, what? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Because I read an interview where he said the idea for Purple Cow came from running this record label where all the artists who were unsigned were trying to sound like the radio. So I have a quote here from him. He says, I explained to an artist that very good meant nothing. Very good was invisible. Either be horrible or amazing. (laughs) And I love that. (laughs) You know, this book was remarkable in that it sold 100,000 copies its first month. So Seth Godin was everywhere. He was everything. He's the most important thought leader, let's put it that way, of the digital bootstrap movement. Bigger than Gary Vee, bigger than Tim Ferriss, bigger than Richard Koch. I think that it's, it's Seth Godin by a mile. His ideas are everywhere. Yeah. I think I've heard a lot of them, even though I don't, I haven't specifically read a ton of his books, but I'm sure like his influence, I know a ton of the stuff that he's written about. Well, I mean, and one of the other things, you know, Seth Godin's books have more or less stood in for this idea of what a business book is for my generation. And he does have a writing style that's basically like one big idea and here's another thing and here's another thing and here's another thing. And those other things are essentially pumping up the one big idea. And so if you were to have a general critique of his work, you could say, well, it could have been 10 pages long, really. Mm -hmm. I could have gotten the idea in 10 pages, but you needed to make a book out of it. And so it's 250 pages. I think it's fair to say that a lot of Seth's books do fall under that. That's his style. That's cool. It's worked for him. I don't mean it as a negative critique, but certainly that's part of the reason I think his ideas have been viral, right? That they are simple. Any other half-assed internet research? Well, it was self-published because his publisher said it was too risky, which once again just proves his point. And by the way, total insanity. Yeah. Now, what were they worried about? I don't know. (laughs) And he published it on, like it came in an actual milk carton, which I think, because the point that he makes in the book is, This isn't about viral marketing campaigns. Advertising is what you do after the product has been created. Like the purple cow, it's part of the product from day one. So I do think the milk carton was kind of like that add-on advertising campaign, but it still worked. Right. One of the things I thought of, a name I've never brought up on this podcast, I'm going to do it for the first time here today. There's some of these all-time purple cows, and he brings up Bob Dylan all the time. Like Bob Dylan plugging in the electric guitar at the folk festival, and people are like, what is this? You know, it's a purple cow. Yeah. So much of this book is 
is about empowering the reader to stand out and to build something really meaningful. But um, I couldn't help but think of Donald Trump as I was reading this. And I just thought, you know, Seth's essentially like defining a lot of this book does go through like the top 100 most profitable companies in America and like how they rose to prominence and how the next group of companies are going to raise to prominence. And he gives tons and tons of examples of big corporations that are purple cows. I just couldn't help but think like Donald Trump kept coming back and like he's doing everything that this book says. And now we've got a whole culture that's trying to figure out the attention economy and seeing that it's about empowering everything, really. It's not just about empowering young creative people, which is Seth Godin's mission. It's prescience could be thought of the whole way to the top, which is we've got kind of a purple cow president in America right now. <laughs> That's a bold statement, but I think you're right. <laughs> it's just, it's totally different. So yeah. Yeah. I think it's pretty obvious for listeners to get a sense for why we can talk about ways to create purple cows later, but one of the ways to do it is to like take two things that aren't typically packaged together and just like put them all together at one. And so you got all of a sudden this attention economy and people might not like Trump, but they pay attention to him. And that's one of the big themes of Purple Cow, which is like, hey, ridicule is pretty good marketing. Okay. So now all of a sudden you have this political candidate who's not political. He's not even really a candidate in a weird way because he doesn't present himself the same way as everybody else. And then he's not even a politician. Well, that's the product. It's packaged. It's all these things that you don't expect. It's extraordinarily remarkable that he even exists, that he can say those things. Like, and then it gets even more remarkable. The more horrible the things he says become, the more we ridicule, the more we remark, the more we talk. And now all of a sudden... It totally worked, like Seth Godin said it would. Mm -hmm. Purple cow, right there. Purple cow. <laughs> All right. Before we get into what's aged the best and what's aged the worst, let's do a too long didn't read review of the key concepts in the book. So a few notes I made. Kyla are fitting in is failing. So he kind of lays out this idea that we live in the third era of advertising where marketing is mainly done through word of mouth, which is a bit strange given all the technology that we have. So he says the implication of this word of mouth era is that if you want your product to succeed, you need to then focus on the early adopters, these sort of like fringe lunatics that are going to carry that word of mouth and bring it into the mainstream. You know, you could look at this podcast and you say, oh, just another digital nomad podcast. But when we started, we were the only podcast with physical products. And so that was Purple Cows. Like, whoa, you can be location independent with physical products. So now you look at it 10 years later and you're like, oh, two guys droning about traveling the world and building a business. Well, I think it comes back to your interesting, that point. I think that one of my biggest takeaways from this conversation is that idea of not really seeing what happened in the early adoption phase of a business. So if you want to copy the incumbent, you're copying them wrong if you're copying them in the middle arc of like when they have mass appeal. You have to look to like that early days. Like, you know, if you want to start the next Gatorade, it, it should be drunk by like 
people who are jumping out of airplanes or something instead of, you know, high school athletes. There's a few other concepts. He talks about being anti-fragile in your investments in product development because purple cow products are quote riskier or whatever. You're going to need to do a lot more of them and you're going to need to do it faster. So he's talking about like agile product development, which is of course prescient as well. He talks a lot about niching until it hurts. Like you got to niche down, you got to really start small. So he's talking about like lean startup kind of stuff. He talks a lot about like a thousand true fan kind of concepts, like these early fanatical type of people. He talks about combining radical things together to find the extremes. Like I remember I had a college professor who talked about how practices define our knowledge and our identities. And he said, look, a baseball pitcher isn't that interesting, but the moment he or she starts writing poetry, that's interesting. And that's your purple cow right there. Or let's look at the podcast that I listened to they're so remarkable, you know, like it's, I'm not like listening to CBS wide world of sports. Like I'm listening to Nate Duncan break down the salary cap of the NBA and the final 15 passes of a game that I didn't watch and don't plan on watching because it's so weird and it's remarkable, you know, any other key elements to the book that you want to bring up before we get into the categories? Yeah, he says we're post-consumption, which just means we have everything we could ever need. So convincing people to buy more stuff gets harder and harder the more comfortable we are. And also we're post-advertising, that there's just, it's so crowded, we just don't see advertising anymore, really. He's talking a lot about like banner ads on websites, because it is 2002. Yeah. And he's talking a lot about like TV commercials and Super Bowl ad placements. And so that's a lot of what he takes aim at in this you know, book. It's sort of like if you're a marketer at a big company and you guys are going to like come up with a new product, like it's typical to get like a big team on it, write a press release, like buy a Super Bowl ad or whatever, and like find something generally interesting. He's basically like pointing this brave new world where like a bunch of internet marketers are going to put up books and weird niches on Amazon and like see if they work. And if they don't work, it's not a big deal, you know, and build a publishing company eventually off of that. So what has aged the best? What do you think is like going back to this book is like, damn, that is good. That is worth the reread. I think niching down. He was so right about that. Like 20 years later, it's even a thousand times more fragmented than it was in 2003. You can literally only hear news information ads about one thing you're interested in if you want to. And also influencer culture. He called them sneezers in the book, like people who will adopt something and then sneeze and all their friends know about it. I remember reading the book and like perfectly grafting all of her Instagram into this. And this is like 10 years before Instagram or whatever. Yeah, for sure. Just people with like 50,000 followers and brands want to work with them because they want to reach that super small niche. Exactly. He saw the principle, Mm -hmm. which I think is ultimately what endures and what ages well about Seth's writing is that it's those key ideas that are sort of really durable. And like the examples feel durable too, because he's not saying like, use Facebook instead of Instagram to market your product. He's saying like, here's the principle and all these companies followed it. And the ones that did, they succeeded. I loved, I read the 2008 version where he added in some more examples at the end, but he just totally crushed the idea of the rereadable. He addressed it bluntly and was like, if you're rereading this, I don't care if the examples are outdated because (laughs) they were a snapshot of that time and it made sense at that time. And like, I stand by my book. And I thought that was really cool. 
Okay, so I have four things that age the best. Wow. Two of them are, are short. The first is Godin's third law of restaurant dining, which states, friendliness of the staff at a pizza restaurant is inversely proportional to the quality of the pizza. Spot on. Can't argue with that. <laughs> but also, you know, part of the reason he brought it up is a joke, but he also said, like, you can push anything to the extreme, like turn the knobs to see if that could create a purple cow. Sometimes the fact that you do have to like earn the hearts of the pizza person, like that makes you want to go to that pizza place or whatever. That's remarkable. An early appearance of the phrase, quote, he suggests that this new era will force us to, quote, productize your services and servicizing your products. You know, we talk about productizing your services, like so much on this podcast, people are rolling their eyes. So I was like, Damn, Seth saw this in 2002, but also servicizing your products like something like Zappos did. And this is a common theme in the internet era that Seth's seen, so that aged really well. I thought the thought experiments at the end of every mini chapter really aged well. He had like a little bold faced star point and he said, Do this thought experiment. And they were all very good. Thought experiments really stand the test of time. And finally, I thought that this was essentially a handbook to viral word of mouth marketing and the idea of viral marketing was first like mentioned in an academic sense since 1996 so this is how young this whole thing is you know and uh, i thought that, that was really interesting so you said like idea virus was a term sneezers early adopters and ultimately the fact that this is a strategy both aimed at and adopted by bootstrappers i thought that that really aged well because those are the people that took Seth's ideas and that's where Seth's ideas all lead. Remember this URL, smashdigital.com slash TMBA. That's where you can get a free video mini audit of your site's SEO by the team over at Smash Digital. I've been hearing about these things the listeners love them, so go get your free mini audit, smashdigital.com slash TMBA. Of course, not every entrepreneur or company can benefit from getting Smash Digital's SEO services involved. So I asked the founder, Travis Jameson, what sort of businesses tend to get the most benefit? Companies that are established and have a quality site. So people who's sites have good content already, if they've been somewhat SEO optimized, if they're modern, people who have businesses versus hacks, businesses do well. We have a company in the financial services space. They have raised tens of millions of dollars and they're valued at hundreds of millions of dollars. And their entire business is built on SEO. And it wasn't even good at first. So Smash Digital is not just another SEO company. They have skin in the game. They're using tried and true and tested techniques from Travis Jameson's own suite of businesses, and they're putting it towards their clients. So why not get your hands on that free mini audit and see what they're all about? Head on over to smashdigital.com slash TMBA. All right, so what's aged the worst? I think he kind of cherry-picked TV advertising to make a larger point, but I think saying that TV advertising is dead didn't really hold up. He never uses numbers for that in the book, so I went and tried to find some numbers. And in June 2009, there was a study in the Journal of Advertising that said 
TV advertising was as effective as ever with brand awareness. <laughs> and then I also just thought about my parents. Like, yeah, in my life, TV advertising is definitely dead. But the only time I see television commercials are when I stay with my parents or my friend's parents or my grandma. And they're not the only ones. Like, there's a large segment of the American population that is sitting down and watching TV advertising. That's a very good one. And one I had on, on my list as well, and I wrote, the main target of the book, the way he sets up the premise is essentially a straw man. You know, it's a bit weak. Oh, there's these big madman style John Draper sitting over there and we don't want to be like him. And this whole idea of the TV industrial complex, I feel like the book might've benefited had he developed the problem a little bit deeper, but at the end of the day, he wanted to get onto that idea at the core of it. I thought one more thing that was interesting about TV was this was a study from 2018 where they did eye tracking with people who were watching advertisements. And people paid more attention. They paid twice as much attention to TV as YouTube and 15 more times than Facebook. So wow. I just thought that was funny that, like, he wrote this book as there's so much advertising, we can't pay attention to any of it. And then 20 years later, like, TV is the type of advertising that people actually pay the most attention to still. Very interesting. <laughs> For me, going back to Seth's books and like knowing how important his ideas have been. One of the things that ages the poorest for me was his unwillingness to go deeper in the book. And, you know, Seth like basically makes assertion, 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 and then support, 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 support. And it's a lot more effective, I believe, to object to yourself, to say like, well, like you just did. Like, well, I object. Like actually TV can be quite powerful. Like if Seth would have held him to that task, I think he could have come up with really interesting responses and the book might have gone in more interesting spaces. And, and that brought up this idea of thinking about Godin and his style is like, he's not an essayist. He's not actually trying to get somewhere with his thinking through his writing. He actually like knows what he wants to say already and he's just going to say it and you're going to take it and get something away from it. In The Dip, for example, he laments that Pressfield beat him to the punch on the idea of the resistance. And he's like, dang, this guy named Stephen Pressfield wrote this book. It's like better than this book. And I'm kind of like a year late on it. But the thing about it is like Seth was like on the doorstep of that idea in this book. And had he just objected to himself and pushed himself deeper, the idea in Meatball Sunday, the idea in The Dip, and certainly the idea in Lynchpin, which is my favorite Godin book, they're right on the doorstep of Purple Cow. And he could have talked about all those things instead of giving like 100 case studies. I don't think that's aged particularly well. And finally, while I'm talking about writing style, is like the unwillingness to provide real frameworks for taking action on this stuff. It wouldn't have, again, been that hard to say like, well, one might object. It's hard to do this. And, and then you reply to the objection and you get somewhere a little bit more interesting than like, oh, and here's another thing. Yeah, I agree with that. Like you said, the case studies are not why you come to the book. And so you could really do away with them and have a 10 page book and it's just as powerful or maybe even more powerful. Yeah. Finally, um, one of the things that aged the worst for me is a, a lack of acknowledgement about how relevance is going to play a role in advertising. And there just maybe wasn't a lot of this, like back in the day you had like sidewalk sign spinners and like chalk on the sidewalk and stuff. And like, these are relevant ways to engage audience. There's so much of that on the internet now that there frankly just are a lot of people making really good businesses that aren't quite purple cowing. They're, they're purple cowing with relevance and with technology. And 
being there at the right time for people that are in need and stuff like that. And that's a big part of the future of business that just kind of gets unnoticed in this book. Yeah, that was a question for me was where does SEO fit into all this? And there was a flyby mention of it where he said, if someone's Googling a question, they're looking for a solution. So you want to present that solution to them in the Google results, which is SEO. So I wondered, yeah, like you said, can't you have just a good enough business, but be really good at SEO? You absolutely can. And well, the other thing, I mean, if you're a purple cow apologist, if you're a bovine apologist, you could say, well, that's part of this sort of weird mix, which is like you have your product that's like sourced and then you have this like strange, remarkable way of being there when people need it. And so you could, but really I think it's, it's something he didn't see at the time, which is fine. It's 2002. Why could I be so hard on the guy? The thing about Seth is like our last episode, Robert Kiyosaki is just such He's easy to not like. He's like, yeah. And like, I don't want to bust on Seth at all. I really believe that Seth is this example of someone who's given so much more to the industry than he's ever taken. Like that's always been mm-hmm. his vibe. I've read his blog for 10 plus years. He's just a giver. Like the way he launches products, the way he does things, it's always felt like, man, that's the right way to do things. The cool thing is, is that Seth's made his ideas so approachable and useful and he's and people have caught on to him so much that they've done all this work for him and so yeah he didn't need to sit there and like write some intense essay because you know he has a lot going on in his life and you know writing a 350 word like good to great jim collins tome wasn't and isn't what seth godin's ever been about and i think that's totally fine of course now it being 2019 it's remarkable how many of these ideas in the purple cow we've seen played out all across our space. Pretty, pretty influential stuff. Which will hold up 20 years later. Like this is pretty incredible. Picking nits. Uh Oh, I just got to say, I I just, I I pick a nit with actually the update at the end of the book. I thought it was bullshit in the sense that, uh, like I was already on case study exhaustion. I think some perspective would have been way, way more interesting and like not that hard to write. We're not asking for a rewrite, but if you're going to zoom back in, spend some time on it. Any nits to pick? I think my biggest nit to pick is over like this being aimed at a certain audience, but him trying to make it for everybody, like you were saying, for people in corporate positions. And he does say at one point, He has this example about this grocery store that was super quirky and strange, and he loved it, and he would tell everyone he knew about it, and it was a purple cow. And then when the sun took it over, he just went for massive expansion, and it wasn't the same, and there wasn't good customer service, and it was just a behemoth grocery store that made money. But he was like, but if that's what you want to do, like maybe that's okay. So he said... If your goals are growth, impact, and building ever larger and sustained businesses, Purple Cow doesn't scale. You can't live Purple Cow all the time because it's too risky, too expensive, and too tiring. It's part of the life cycle of a product. You can use it to grow or introduce something new. So I think that was a major part of this idea is it's not just Purple Cow every day you're killing yourself creating new stuff and you're failing all the time and you're not making any money and you have no stability and that was just one little footnote in this one chapter and i think it deserved a bit more than that totally i i picked up on that too 
so again, Seth is just gesturing towards this whole new, like, small is great, like, tiny business, tiny seed, tiny fund, you know, a business of one. We're seeing him wrestle with the germ of this idea. He mentioned the example of if you're a marketer for a technology product and you're in this cycle of like every year, just like changing the bits and bobs around a little bit and making it the next greatest thing that, that, that might not work anymore if you're going to be a purple cow business. So what you might want to do is do like reissues of your classic stuff and like let your current product line sort of meditate in the market a little bit longer for the same reasons you brought up. And this is a very like fruitful discussion to see what he's talking about here but he didn't really get into it. He just sort of put it out there and, and that's the end of it. But certainly in our last week's episode with Kevin Graham was about exactly this, which is the idea of emotional labor. You see, you gave like the cloud constellation of Seth thinking about emotional labor. In a subsequent book called Lynchpin, he centers on it exactly and says like, what we're talking about here is emotional labor. And you can't line up that necessarily with like December 25th, we got to launch like the new product line or whatever. And definitely these are the sorts of like echoes that you walk away from this early book with like, maybe my future doesn't look a lot like the past, basically. Best quote from the book. Why aren't you cheating? (laughs) I thought that was so good. Not cheating in the sense of black hat tactics, but that Tim Ferriss principle of he became this champion at this martial art because he would push his opponent out of the ring instead of use the actual martial art he was supposed to be doing. Like what are the, what are the ways to stay within the bounds of moral business, but you're just coming at it from such a different angle that you're kind of cheating. What else did he say about the cheating thing? Yeah. He made a list of businesses. So he said, Starbucks, cheated because they invented the coffee bar in America or JetBlue cheated because their in-flight snacks were so amazing. So those kind of things. So one of the ways he talked about cheating was that you could basically steal from people in adjacent industries. Maybe we should talk about how to be a purple cow later and how we've done it. So let's get to that. I have a couple quotes I want to share. The first one is marketing is too important to be left to the marketing department. And this is a David Packard quote. And I just thought, uh, this is Seth's ultimate project here, which is to once and for all cement the marketer status at the top of the food chain here. And it's pretty effective stuff. And if you got to think about the kind of legacy he's coming from, which is like marketers are essentially liars. They're trying to manipulate you. They're this thing that happens at the very end of all the important stuff and everybody else in the company is doing the important stuff. And I think this is part of the reason Seth has really risen to preeminence is he's right that marketing has, its role has changed in the business. It's more fundamental. And the idea of the purple cow really comes down to the marketer is like the a priori first moment of a business. So you could say like, well, that even fits when you talk about things like SEO, which is one of the first businesses we started was based on SEO research. Like, is there a hungry market started there? And we built the product backwards from the research. And this is the world that Seth Godin's talking about, which is the old world would be like, we're going to build the product, hire the sales team, or, you know, all this kind of stuff. And then at the last moment, the marketing team comes in, 
puts the product on a poster and comes up with the slogan. Mm-hmm. So again, the marketing department is essentially the C-suite. This is uh, what the purpose of that quote, the meaning of that quote to me. My next quote is, the old rule was create safe, ordinary products and combine them with great marketing. The new rule is create remarkable products that the right people seek out. Sounds a lot like bootstrap internet business right there. Okay, so the idea that you'll most likely remember in 20 years or that has the potential to impact your life down the line. So this was another quote I wrote down. It's nobody says, yeah, I'd like to set myself up for some serious criticism. And yet the (laughs) only way to be remarkable is to do just that. So I think in 20 years, I'd like to be able to look back and say that I failed a lot because that means that I was being risky and hopefully I had some major wins out of that. I don't want to look back and say, oh, I did the safe thing and I'm nowhere interesting because of that. I also think this is why there are, over the last 20 years since this book has been written, it's come out in the wash that a lot of preeminent personalities online are people that if you knew them in your social circle, they would be ostracized in some weird way or they would be labeled with an abnormal personality disorder or whatever. You know, like when you're in a social group and it's like, what's going on with so-and-so, you know? But so-and-so is very often purple cowing out on YouTube or something. In part, it can be because those people are immune to the kind of critique that is the core concern of this book. And so I think that, again, when we look at things like in broader cultural impact in business, things like politics, it's sort of interesting. Now, all of a sudden, our society has shifted a little bit and people that are immune to critique are rising to the top or at least becoming remarkable. I think it's very tough to know like what is criticism you actually need to hear that will make you better versus what criticism you should write off. Right. And then there's like sort of the top level point, which is like, oh, I should just amass criticism. I should just do anything that would get me criticized because they're directly correlated with remarkability and therefore business success. Which he does mention in the book, like don't just do something that people are going to criticize you for because it's stupid and outrageous but you could maybe you could say like seth unleashed the idea virus here and he doesn't necessarily have the anecdote to it and just telling people to you know pump the brakes a little bit that's not doing anything so yeah don't going out and being absurd and ridiculous and hurtful inflammatory whatever it is like these can be extremely effective in today's day and age just if you look at like a basic principle now like if you just go to enough people and like say a galvanizing message, you only need like the small percentage of, of fanatical people to buy the galvanizing message for your thing to take off. So the idea for me that I think would be the big, big takeaway is I guess that emotional labor, the emotional bravery to be yourself and to take full responsibility for being weird, parodiable, or extreme in some way, or at least notable and remarkable, which I think is really hard. And I think part of the reason that this book had such a big impact on me when I first read it is the idea that you would be any of those things in a professional or business context 
was almost unthinkable. Like that you were going to kind of like stick your own personal neck out there with either an idea or your persona was so extreme. And it was not only like mockable in the market, but it was like mockable in your immediate social circle. One of the things I did, I did something mockable. I mean, I was selling this ridiculous piece of cat furniture at the time. And I read this book in a Dan Kennedy book, and I immediately put up a long form sales page about cat furniture. It was one of those things that I'm glad I was alone, like sequestered in Montreal doing this work because had I been in an office with other marketing people, like it, they never would have let me do this because it wasn't what a real company should do. It wasn't what a real entrepreneur or business owner should do. It was something that I only did because I was just hidden away by myself, reliant on these books and like one or two other people that were busy doing other stuff. And so they depended on me to be the marketer to say, well, I might as well trust Seth Godin because like he's the best I got and no one else is around me. So I did. And I, and that was this first move of kind of getting a little bit of a, a habit of being myself in a business context and kind of getting a sense for that. That's okay. Like there's not like a set of rules out here. And that was really enormous for me. And I suspect it could even be enormous for readers nowadays because we still seek out cultural totems, whether you know it's how a company should be run. Well, now you can go on the web and you can take a course and you can read blog posts about how an internet lifestyle should be run. I think what the emotional labor is all about is figuring out how to carve out your identity and all of that and how to be a leader first to yourself. And that's the hardest thing. And I think that's what Purple Cow can help people do. Any book where the core message is basically you do you and that's okay. And I give you permission to do that. I'm totally on board with because right. I think those books are so life-changing if you get them at the right time. You do you is a good whisper for this book. Actually, there's another one that I think is a big idea that I think I did walk with the first time I read this and it is 20 years later. Being a marketing minded entrepreneur is the power position in the 21st century, i.e., the fundamental skill set. So I think this is a personal failing in me and like a not serious kind of preoccupation, but nonetheless, a narrative I've told myself, which is I don't remember why I studied philosophy in university exactly, but the story I tell myself is because I thought like it's the most fundamental thing to learn that's important at least I want to kind of like learn the first principles. And there's something about Purple Cow and Seth Godin's work that attracted me like, this is the power position. It's not like knowing development. It's not knowing how to manage people. It's like, this is at the core of it all. Like understanding what people want and how to create something for that need and how to generate, like that's kind of where everything circles around. And that was seductive to me. And I believed what Seth was saying. And time and time throughout my career, I've continued to think about this idea of like, you know, if I know that people need this thing here at this price, like who cares if I have a factory relationship? Like I'll go get the factory. Who cares if I have a designer? I'll go get it. Like in other words, you can kind of get rid of everything else and say, I'll go figure that out. No biggie. But the first principle, which is like knowing what people want, when they want it, how they want it, what price they want it at, you can't get rid of that. Like that is the power position. 
when I was coming up in business, it wasn't that at all. It was like the person with the good idea and the factory and the design skills. And, and this is why one of the call to actions at the end of the book is, hey, marketers, you need to understand design. But what I think he means is like, hey, marketers, you need to understand everything. Because if you do, you'll be able to run your own business. That's what I took away from this book. Would this book work better in another format? Yeah, I think it could just be a blog post. Yeah, straight up. I think it could be too. Yeah. 5,000 words maybe. Mm-hmm. I think it already has been done better in a podcast called Startup School, which is, I think it's just like just over 10 episodes. It's one of the best like podcast series I've ever listened to. Seth is an amazing speaker and his writing style is very reminiscent of a speaking style. And so personally, I think, you know, startup school has a lot of these ideas a little bit more formulated. And so I would definitely recommend if you haven't checked that out, listeners, check that out. I hadn't really considered this until this moment, but if you're listening to this podcast and you're thinking about rereading Purple Cow, I would say don't do it. I would say go listen to startup school. It brings out the best in Seth and it's also, he's able to look back on some of these ideas. I think he published it in like 2012 So it's a lot more like taking purple cow ideas and showing you how you can implement them through a dip as a linchpin, you know, vis-a-vis meatball Sunday or whatever. He's pulling it all together to help you get a sense for what your startup might look like. So let's challenge each other a little bit. Do you feel like you've been appropriately bovine in your career? My current business, definitely not. It's just Amazon SEO and my books are good enough and then they rank number one for keywords so definitely not purple cow maybe a bit in my journalism career that I kind of made my own position at the company I started in crime and then I was really good at doing quirky stories on the side so I eventually became like if they had a strange story it was like I'll send that one to Kyla so I kind of made a niche there that I was proud of Maybe then, but not now. Which is interesting. Again, a theme of this podcast is like all the tendrils were there, which is like, that's essentially Lynchpin, which I think is a really, really strong book. Purple Cow is very much about like your product, the kind of things you're trying to create and your kind of marketing campaigns and stuff. Whereas Lynchpin is very much about like you, the reader, like you want to get ahead, like you need to be a purple cow and like, here's how you, you do that vis-a-vis a career. So Lynchpin in some ways pulls together a lot more threads than Purple Cow does for me in retrospect. So what about you? Have you had Purple Cow businesses? It's interesting because like I recall this book having such an enormous impact on me. And on the reread, I can't exactly remember how. I remember that first week when I decided to rewrite the long form cat furniture sales page, which didn't last a a very long time. But like I had like yellow highlighted, you know, quotes about our cat furniture and stuff. It was, it was kind of bad, but so it had that kind of direct immediate, like I'll take action on this this way. But in some ways, like Seth's ideas have become so ubiquitous that this idea of combining two things that shouldn't be together. I think that this is a, a big theme in my career and a big theme in Seth Godin's work, which is we talked about the pitcher that's a poet in our case, it could be something as simple as like something that's supposed to be made in America that's all of a sudden made in China. You know, if someone's supposed to call on a phone, all of a sudden they're searching on a Google index. And 
that's enough to be a purple cow. Like we ended up making these really quirky organizations, like these micro multinationals, all of a sudden we're coming in and competing with what looked like very much local businesses. And so I think we had the bravery to be what we wanted to be and going into these niches that were unsexy at the time. So maybe it was those sorts of things that I took away from this book, like be small, that's cool. Get started with a crazy small group, that's cool. And it it snowballs and that leads into stuff. And maybe it's back to what you said at the top, which is you can't do what other people are doing if you want to get ahead. And maybe that's ultimately what I took away from Purple Cow is that bravery to first lead myself and say, it's cool that you want to like do all this stuff overseas. It's like cool that you guys want to service a small old industrial product niche. Like it's weird. Like everybody thinks it's weird. Like maybe that's not so weird. Maybe that's what I took from it. Kyla Gardner, thanks for joining me on this week's podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Big thanks to Kyla Gardner for coming by the show this week. Check her out, our amazing newsletter and blog over at kylagardner.com. Got to say, a little daunting doing a rereadable of Seth Godin. Last time we did this, we did Robert Kiyosaki's Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And that book, you know, is just really open to so many different interpretations and it has a mixed legacy and everything. And so it was fun to tee off on those ideas about wealth where you look at Seth Godin's catalog, he's helped describe the vision of what so many of us are doing. And so simultaneously, you have this great sense of respect for his work. And also you see all the implications that he was there so early days on so many of the ideas that we run these businesses on. So hope you enjoyed this episode about Seth Godin. Hope you dig into some of his back catalog. Uh, Certainly had a good time doing it myself. They're super rereadable too, in the sense that, you know, you can sit down for a few hours with a book like Purple Cow or Lynchpin and you can walk with actionable ideas and inspiration. So pretty cool there. What other books would you want to hear a readable about? Give me an email, dan at tropicalmba.com, or drop a link in the comments. This one's going to be posted over at tropicalmba.com slash purple cow. That's it for this week. As always, we will be back next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.